Part five of Phase the Fourth The Consequence of Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter thirty three. Angel felt that he would like to spend a day with her before the wedding, somewhere away from the dairy, as a last jaunt in her company while they were yet mere lover and mistress, a romantic day in circumstances that would never be repeated with that other and greater day beaming close ahead of them. During the preceding week, therefore, he suggested making a few purchases in the nearest town, and they started together. Clare's life at the dairy had been that of a recluse in respect to the world of his own class. For months he had never gone near a town, and, requiring no vehicle, had never kept one, hiring the dairyman's cob or gig if he rode or drove. They went in the gig that day and then for the first time in their lives they shopped as partners in one concern it was christmas eve with its loads of holly and mistletoe and the town was very full of strangers who had come in from all parts of the country on account of the day tess paid the penalty of walking about with happiness superadded to beauty on her countenance by being much stared at as she moved amid them on his arm in the evening they returned to the inn at which they had put up and Tess waited in the entry while Angel went to see the horse and gig brought to the door. The general sitting-room was full of guests, who were continually going in and out. As the door opened and shut each time for the passage of these, the light within the parlour fell full upon Tess's face. Two men came out and passed by her among the rest. One of them had stared her up and down in surprise, and she fancied he was a Trentridge man, though that village lay so many miles off that Trantridge folk were rarities here. "'A comely maid, that,' said the other. "'True, comely enough. But unless I make a great mistake—' And he negatived the remainder of the definition forthwith. Clare had just returned from the stable-yard, and, confronting the man on the threshold, heard the words and saw the shrinking of Tess. The insult to her stung him to the quick and before he had considered anything at all, he struck the man on the chin with the full force of his fist, sending him staggering backwards into the passage. The man recovered himself, and seemed inclined to come on, and Clare, stepping outside the door, put himself in a posture of defence. But his opponent began to think better of the matter. He looked anew at Tess as he passed her, and said to Clare, "'I beg pardon, sir. Twas a complete mistake.' I thought she was another woman forty miles from here. Clare, feeling then that he had been too hasty, and that he was, moreover, to blame for leaving her standing in an inn passage, did what he usually did in such cases, gave the man five shillings to plaster the blow, and thus they parted, bidding each other a pacific good-night. As soon as Clare had taken the reins from the ostler and the young couple had driven off, the two men went in the other direction. And was it a mistake? said the second one. Not a bit of it. But I didn't want to hurt the gentleman's feelings, not I. In the meantime the lovers were driving onward. Could we put off our wedding till a little later? Tess asked, in a dry, dull voice. I mean, if we wished. No, my love, calm yourself. Do you mean that the fellow may have time to summon me for assault? he asked, good-humouredly no i only meant uh, if it should have to be put off 
what she meant was not very clear and he directed her to dismiss such fancies from her mind which she obediently did as well as she could but she was grave very grave all the way home till she thought we shall go away a very long distance hundreds of miles from these parts and such as this can never happen again and no ghost of the past reach there they parted tenderly that night on the landing and clare ascended to his attic tess sat up getting on with some little requisites lest the few remaining days should not afford sufficient time while she sat she heard a noise in angel's room overhead a sound of thumping and struggling everybody else in the house was asleep and in her anxiety lest clare should be ill she ran up and knocked at his door and asked him what was the matter oh nothing dear he said from within i am so sorry i disturbed you but the reason is rather an amusing one i fell asleep and dreamt that i was fighting that fellow again who insulted you and the noise you heard was my pummeling away with my fists at my portmanteau which i pulled out to-day for packing i am occasionally liable to these freaks in my sleep go to bed and think of it no more this was a last drum required to turn the scale of her indecision declare the past to him by word of mouth she could not but there was another way she sat down and wrote on the four pages of a note-sheet a succinct narrative of those events of three or four years ago put it into an envelope and directed it to clare then lest the flesh should again be weak she crept upstairs without any shoes and slipped the note under his door her night was a broken one as it well might be and she listened for the first faint noise overhead it came as usual he descended as usual she descended he met her at the bottom of the stairs and kissed her surely it was as warmly as ever he looked a little disturbed and worn she thought but he said not a word to her about her revelation even when they were alone could he have had it unless he began the subject she felt that she could say nothing so the day passed and it was evident that whatever he thought he meant to keep to himself yet he was frank and affectionate as before could it be that her doubts were childish that he forgave her that he loved her for what she was just as she was and smiled at her disquiet as at a foolish nightmare had he really received her note she glanced into his room and could see nothing of it it might be that he forgave her but even if he had not received it she had a sudden enthusiastic trust that he surely would forgive her every morning and night he was the same and thus new year's eve broke the wedding day the lovers did not rise at milking time having through the whole of this last week of their sojourn at the dairy been accorded something of the position of guests tess being honoured with a room of her own when they arrived downstairs at breakfast time they were surprised to see what effects had been produced in the large kitchen for their glory since they had last beheld it at some unnatural hour of the morning the dairyman had caused the yawning chimney-corner to be whitened and the brick hearth reddened and the blazing yellow damask blower to be hung across the arch in place of the old grimy blue cotton one with a black sprig pattern which had formerly done duty there 
This renovated aspect of what was the focus, indeed, of the room on a full winter morning threw a smiling demeanour over the whole apartment. "'I was determined to do summat in honour of it,' said the dairyman, "'and, as you wouldn't hear of me giving a rattling good randy with fiddles and bass vials complete, as we should have done in old times, this was all I could think of as a noiseless thing.' Tessa's friends lived so far off that none could conveniently have been present at the ceremony, even had they been asked. But, as a fact, nobody was invited for Marlott. As for Angel's family, he had written and duly informed them of the time, and had assured them that he would be glad to see one at least of them there for the day if he would like to come. His brothers had not replied at all, seeming to be indignant with him while his father and mother had written a rather sad letter, deploring his precipitancy in rushing into marriage, but making the best of the matter by saying that, though a dairywoman was the last daughter-in-law they could have expected, their son had arrived at an age which he might be supposed to be the best judge. This coolness in his relations distressed Clare less than it would have done had he been without the grand card with which he meant to surprise them ere long. To produce Tess, fresh from the dairy, as a d'Urberville and a lady, he had felt to meet temerarious and risky. Hence he had concealed her lineage till such time as, familiarized with worldly ways by a few months' travel and reading with him, he could take her on a visit to his parents and impart the knowledge while triumphantly producing her as worthy of such an ancient line. It was a pretty lover's dream, if no more. Perhaps Tess's lineage had more value for himself than for anybody in the world beside. Her perception that Angel's bearing towards her still remained in no whit altered by her own communication rendered Tess guiltily doubtful if he could have received it. She rose from breakfast before he had finished, and hastened upstairs. It had occurred to her to look once more into the queer gaunt room which had been Clare's den, or rather eerie, for so long and climbing the ladder she stood at the open door of the apartment, regarding and pondering. She stooped to the threshold of the doorway where she had pushed in the note two or three days earlier in such excitement. The carpet reached close to the sill, and under the edge of the carpet she discerned the faint white margin of the envelope containing her letter to him, which she obviously had never seen, owing to her having in haste thrusted beneath the carpet as well as beneath the door. With a feeling of faintness she withdrew the letter. There it was, sealed up, just as it had left her hands. The mountain had not yet been removed. She could not let him read it now, the house being in full bustle of preparation, and descending to her own room she destroyed the letter there. She was so pale when he saw her again that he felt quite anxious. The incident of the misplaced letter she had jumped at, as if it prevented a confession, but she knew in her conscience that it need not. There was still time. Yet everything was in a stir. There was coming and going. All had to dress, the dairyman and Mrs. Crick having been asked to accompany them as witnesses, and reflection or deliberate talk was well-nigh impossible. The only minute Tess could get to be alone with Clare was when they met upon the landing. I am so anxious to talk to you. I, I want to confess all my faults and blunders," she said with attempted lightness. No, no, 
we can't have faults talked of you must be deemed perfect to-day at least my sweet he cried we shall have plenty of time hereafter i hope to talk over our failings i will confess mine at the same time but it would be better for me to do it now i think so that you could not say well my quixotic one you shall tell me anything say as soon as we are settled in our lodging not now i too will tell you my faults then but do not let us spoil the day with them they will be excellent matter for a dull time then you don't wish me to dearest i do not tessie really the hurry of dressing and starting left no time for more than this those words of his seemed to reassure her on further reflection she was whirled onward through the next couple of critical hours by the mastering tide of her devotion to him which closed up further meditation her one desire so long resisted to make herself his to call him her lord her own then if necessary to die had at last lifted her up from her plodding reflective pathway in dressing she moved about in a mental cloud of many-coloured idealities which eclipsed all sinister contingencies by its brightness the church was a long way off and they were obliged to drive particularly as it was winter a closed carriage was ordered from a roadside inn a vehicle which had been kept there ever since the old days of post-chaise travelling it had stout wheel-spokes and heavy fellows a great curved bed immense straps and springs and a pole like a battering-ram the postilion was a venerable boy of sixty a martyr to rheumatic gout the result of excessive exposure in youth counteracted by strong liquors who stood at the inn doors doing nothing for the whole five-and-twenty years that had elapsed since he had no longer been required to ride professionally as if expecting the old times to come back again he had a permanent running wound on the outside of his right leg originated by the constant bruisings of aristocratic carriage-poles during the many years that he had been in regular employ at the king's arms casterbridge inside this cumbrous and creaking structure and behind this decayed conductor the partier carre took their seats the bride and bridegroom and mr and mrs crick angel would have liked one at least of his brothers to be present as groomsman but their silence after his gentle hint to that effect by letter had signified that they did not care to come they disapproved of the marriage and could not be expected to countenance it perhaps it was as well that they could not be present they were not worldly young fellows but fraternizing with dairy folk would have struck unpleasantly upon their biased niceness apart from their views of the match upheld by the momentum of the time tess knew nothing of this did not see anything did not know the road they were taking to the church she knew that angel was close to her all the rest was a luminous mist she was sort of a celestial person who owed her being to poetry one of those classical divinities claire was accustomed to talk to her about when they took their walks together the marriage being by license there were only a dozen or so of people in the church had there been a thousand they would have produced no more effect upon her they were at stellar distances from her present world in the ecstatic solemnity with which she wore her faith to him the ordinary sensibilities of sex seemed a flippancy 
At a pause in the service, while they were kneeling together, she unconsciously inclined herself towards him, so that her shoulder touched his arm. She had been frightened by a passing thought, and the movement had been automatic, to assure herself that he was really there, and to fortify her belief that his fidelity would be proof against all things. Clare knew that she loved him. Every curve of her form showed that. But he did not know at that time the full depth of her devotion, its single-mindedness, its meekness, what long-suffering it guaranteed, what honesty, what endurance, what good faith. As they came out of the church, the ringers swung the bells off their rests, and a modest peal of three notes broke forth. That limited amount of expression having been deemed sufficient by the church builders for the joys of such a small parish. Passing by the tower with her husband on the path to the gate, she could feel the vibrant air humming round them from the louvered belfry in the circle of sound, and it matched the highly charged mental atmosphere in which she was living. This condition of mind, wherein she felt glorified by an irradiation not her own, like the angel whom St. John saw in the sun, lasted till the sound of the church bells had died away, the emotions of the wedding service had calmed down. Her eyes could dwell upon details more clearly now, and Mr. and Mrs. Crick, having directed their own gig to be sent for them to lead the carriage to the young couple, she observed the build and character of that conveyance for the first time. Sitting in silence, she regarded it long. "'I fancy you seem oppressed, Tessie,' said Clare. "'Yes,' she answered, putting her hand to her brow. "'I tremble at many things. It is all so serious, Angel. Among other things, I seem to have seen this carriage before, to be very well acquainted with it. It is very odd. I must have seen it in a dream.' oh you have heard the legend of the d'urberville coach that well-known superstition of this county about your family when they were very popular here and this lumbering old thing reminds you of it i have never heard of it to my knowledge said she what is the legend may i know it well i would rather not tell it in detail just now a certain d'urberville of the sixteenth or seventeenth century committed a dreadful crime in his family coach and since that time members of the family see or hear the old coach whenever but i'll tell you another day it is rather gloomy evidently some dim knowledge of it has been brought back to your mind by the sight of this venerable caravan i don't remember hearing it before she murmured is it when we are going to die angel that members of my family see it or is it when we have committed a crime now tess he silenced her by a kiss by the time they reached home she was contrite and spiritless she was mrs angel clare indeed but had she any moral right to the name was she not more truly mr alexander d'urberville could intensity of love justify what might be considered in upright souls as culpable reticence? She knew not what was expected of women in such cases, and she had no counsellor. However, when she found herself alone in her room for a few minutes, the last day, this on which she was ever to enter it, she knelt down and prayed. She tried to pray to God, but it was her husband who really had her supplication. 
her idolatry of this man was such that she herself almost feared it to be ill-omened she was conscious of the notion expressed by friar lawrence these violent delights have violent ends it might be too desperate for human conditions too rank too wild too deadly oh my love why do i love you so she whispered there alone for she you love is not my real self but one in my image the one i might have been afternoon came and with it the hour for departure they had decided to fulfil the plan of going for a few days to the lodgings in the old farmhouse near wellbridge mill at which he meant to reside during his investigation of flower processes at two o'clock there was nothing left to do but to start all the servantry of the dairy were standing in the red brick entry to see them go out the dairyman and his wife following to the door tess saw her three chambermaids in a row against the wall pensively inclining their heads she had much questioned if they would appear at the parting moment but there they were stoical and staunch to the last she knew why the delicate Betty looked so fragile and is so tragically sorrowful and marian so blank and she forgot her own dogging shadow for a moment in contemplating theirs she impulsively whispered to him will you kiss em all once poor things for the first and last time clare had not the least objection to such a farewell formality which was all that it was to him and as he passed them he kissed them in succession where they stood saying good-bye to each as he did so when they reached the door tess femininely glanced back to discern the effect of that kiss of charity there was no triumph in her glance as there might have been if there had it would have disappeared when she saw how moved the girls all were the kiss had obviously done harm by awakening feelings they were trying to subdue of all this clare was unconscious passing on to the wicket gate he shook hands with the dairyman and his wife and expressed his last thanks to them for their attentions after which there was a moment of silence before they moved off it was interrupted by the crowing of a cock the white one with the rose-comb had come and settled on the palings in front of the house within a few yards of them and his notes thrilled their ears through dwindling away like echoes down a valley of rock oh said mrs crick an afternoon crow two men were standing by the yard gate holding it open that's bad one murmured to the other not thinking that the words could be heard by the group at the door wicket the cock crew again straight towards clare well said the dairyman i don't like to hear him said tess to her husband tell the man to drive on good-bye good-bye the cock crew again Oosh! just you be off sir or i'll twist your neck said the dairyman with some irritation turning to the bird and driving him away and to his wife as they went indoors now to think of that just to-day i've not heard his crow of an afternoon all the year afore it only means a change in the weather said she not what you think tis impossible chapter thirty four they drove by the level road along the valley to a distance of a few miles 
and, reaching Wellbridge, turned away from the village to the left, and over the great Elizabethan bridge, which gives the place half its name. Immediately behind it stood the house wherein they had engaged lodgings, whose exterior features are so well known to all travellers through the Froom Valley. Once portion of a fine manorial residence, and the property and seat of a d'Urberville, but since its partial demolition, a farmhouse. "'Welcome to one of your ancestral mansions,' said Clare, as he handed her down. But he regretted the pleasantry. It was too near a satire. On entering they found that, though they had only engaged a couple of rooms, the farmer had taken advantage of their proposed presence during the coming days to pay a New Year's visit to some friends, leaving a woman from a neighbouring cottage to minister to their few wants. The absoluteness of possession pleased them, and they realised it as the first moment of their experience under their own exclusive roof-tree. But he found that the mouldy old habitation somewhat depressed his bride. When the carriage was gone they ascended the stairs to wash their hands, the charwoman showing the way. On the landing Tess stopped and started. "'What's the matter?' said he. "'Those horrid women!' she answered with a smile. "'How they frightened me!' He looked up, and perceived two life-size portraits on panels built into the masonry. As all visitors to the mansion are aware, these paintings represent women of middle age, of a date some two hundred years ago, whose lineaments, once seen, can never be forgotten. The long, pointed features, narrow eye, and smirk of the one, so suggestive of merciless treachery, the bill-hook nose, large teeth, and bold eye of the other, suggesting arrogance to the point of ferocity, haunt the beholder afterwards in his dreams. "'Whose portraits are those?' asked Clare of the charwoman. "'I've been told by old folk that they were ladies of the D'Urberville family, the ancient lords of this manor,' she said. "'Owing to their being builded into the wall, they can't be moved away.' The unpleasantness of the matter was that, in addition to their effect upon Tess, her fine features were unquestionably traceable in those exaggerated forms. He said nothing of this, however, and, regretting that he had gone out of his way to choose the house for their bridal time, went on into the adjoining room. The place having been rather hastily prepared for them, they washed their hands in one basin. Clare touched hers under the water. "'Which are my fingers, and which are yours?' he said, looking up. "'They are very much mixed.' "'They are all yours,' said she, very prettily, and endeavoured to be gayer than she was. He had not been displeased with her thoughtfulness on such an occasion. It was what every sensible woman would show. But Tess knew that she had been thoughtful to excess, and struggled against it. The sun was so low on that short last afternoon of the year that it shone in through a small opening and formed a golden staff which dressed across her skirt, where it made a spot like a paint-mark set upon her. They went into the ancient parlour to tea, and here they shared their first common meal alone. Such was their childishness, or rather his, that he found it interesting to use the same bread-and-butter plate as herself, and to brush crumbs from her lips with his own. He wondered a little that she did not enter into these frivolities with his own zest. Looking at her silently for a long time, "'She is a dear, dear Tess,' 
he thought to himself, as one deciding on the true construction of a difficult passage. Do I realize solemnly enough how utterly and irretrievably this little womanly thing is the creature of my good or bad faith and fortune? I think not. I think I could not, unless I were a woman myself. What I am in worldly estate she is. What I become she must become. What I cannot be she cannot be. And shall I ever neglect her, or hurt her, or even forget to consider her? God forbid such a crime. They sat on over the tea-table waiting for their luggage, which the dairyman had promised to send before it grew dark. But evening began to close in, and the luggage did not arrive, and they had brought nothing more than they stood in. With the departure of the sun, the calm mood of the winter day changed. Out of doors there began noises as of silk smartly rubbed. The restful dead leaves of the preceding autumn were stirred to irritated resurrection, and wheeled about unwillingly, and tapped against the shutters. It soon began to rain. "'That cock knew the weather was going to change,' said Clare. The woman who had attended upon them had gone home for the night, but she had placed candles upon the table, and now they lit them. Each candle-flame drew towards the fireplace. "'These old houses are so draughty," continued Angel, looking at the flames and at the grease guttering down the sides. "'I wonder where that luggage is. We haven't even a brush and comb.' "'I don't know,' she answered, absent-minded. "'Tess, you are not a bit cheerful this evening, not at all as you used to be. Those harridans on the panels upstairs have unsettled you.' I am sorry I brought you here. I wonder if you really love me, after all." He knew that she did, and the words had no serious intent, but she was surcharged with emotion, and winced like a wounded animal. Though she tried not to shed tears, she could not help showing one or two. "'I did not mean it,' said he, sorry. "'You are worried at not having your things, I know. I cannot think why old Jonathan has not come with him. Why, it is seven o'clock. Ah, there he is. A knock had come to the door, and, there being nobody else to answer it, Clare went out. He returned to the room with a small package in his hand. It is not Jonathan, after all, he said. How vexing, said Tess. The packet had been brought by a special messenger who had arrived at Talberthay's from Emminster Vicarage immediately after the departure of the married couple, and had followed them hither, being under injunction to deliver it to nobody's hands but theirs. Clare brought it to the light. It was less than a foot long, sewed up in canvas, sealed in red wax with his father's seal, and directed in his father's hand to Mrs. Angel Clare. "'It is a little wedding present for you, Tess,' said he, handing it to her. How thoughtful they are! Tess looked a little flustered as she took it. I think I would rather have you open it, dearest, said she, turning over the parcel. I don't like to break those great seals. They look so serious. Please open it for me. He undid the parcel. Inside was a case of Morocco leather, on the top of which lay a note and a key. The note was for Clare in the following words. My dear son, 
possibly you have forgotten that on the death of your godmother mrs pitney when you were a lad she vain kind woman that she was left to me a portion of the contents of her jewel-case in trust for your wife if you should ever have one as a mark of her affection for you and whomsoever you should choose this trust i have fulfilled and the diamonds have been locked up at my bankers ever since though i feel it to be a somewhat incongruous act in the circumstances i am as you will see bound to hand over the articles to the woman to whom the use of them for her lifetime will now rightly belong and they are therefore promptly sent they become i believe heirlooms strictly speaking according to the terms of your godmother's will the precise words of the clause that refers to the matter are enclosed i do remember said clare but i had quite forgotten unlocking the case they found it to contain a necklace with pendant bracelets and earrings and also some other small ornaments tess seemed afraid to touch them at first but her eyes sparkled for a moment as much as the stones when clare spread out the set are they mine she asked incredulously they are certainly said he he looked into the fire he remembered how when he was a lad of fifteen his godmother the squire's wife the only rich person with whom he had ever come in contact had pinned her faith to his success had prophesied a wondrous career for him there had seemed nothing at all out of keeping with such a conjectured career in the storing up of these showy ornaments for his wife and the wives of her descendants they gleamed somewhat ironically now yet why he asked himself it was but a question of vanity throughout and if that were admitted into one side of the equation it should be admitted into the other his wife was a d'urberville who could they become better than her suddenly he said with enthusiasm tess put them on put them on and he turned from the fire to help her but as if by magic she had already donned them necklace earrings bracelets and all but the gown isn't right tess said clare it ought to be a low one for a set of brilliance like that ought it said tess yes said he he suggested to her how to tuck in the upper edge of her bodice so as to make it roughly approximate to the cut for evening wear and when she had done this and the pendant to the necklace hung isolated amid the whiteness of her throat as he was designed to do he stepped back to survey her my heavens said clare how beautiful you are as everybody knows fine feathers make fine birds a peasant girl but very moderately prepossessing to the casual observer in her simple condition and attire will bloom as an amazing beauty if clothed as a woman of fashion with the age that art can render while the beauty of the midnight crush would often cut but a sorry figure if placed inside the field woman's wrapper upon a monotonous acreage of turnips on a dull day he had never till now estimated the artistic excellence of tessa's limbs and features if you were only to appear in a ballroom he said but no no dearest i think i love you best in the wing bonnet and cotton frock yes better than in this 
well as you support these dignities. Tessa's sense of her striking appearance had given her a flush of excitement, which was not yet happiness. I'll take them off, she said, in case Jonathan should see me. They are not fit for me, are they? They must be sold, I suppose. Let them stay a few minutes longer. Sell them? Never. It would be a breach of faith. Influenced by a second thought, she readily obeyed. She had something to tell, and there might be help in these. She sat down with the jewels upon her, and they again indulged in conjectures as to where Jonathan could possibly be with their baggage. The ale they had poured out for his consumption when he had come had gone flat with long standing. Shortly after this they began supper, which was already laid on a side table. Ere they had finished there was a jerk in the fire-smoke, the rising skein of which bulged out into the room, as if some giant had laid his hand on the chimney-top for a moment. It had been caused by the opening of the outer door. A heavy step was now heard in the passage, and Angel went out. "'I couldn't make nobody here at all by knocking,' apologized Jonathan Cale, for it was he at last. "'And as it was raining out I opened the door.' I brought the things, sir. I'm very glad to see them, but you are very late. Well, yes, sir. There was something subdued in Jonathan Cale's tone which had not been there in the day, and lines of concern were ploughed upon his forehead in addition to the lines of years. He continued, We've all been gallied at the dairy at what might have been a most terrible affliction since you and your missus, so to name her now, left us this afternoon. Perhaps you hadn't forgotten the cock's afternoon crow? Dear me, what? Well, some says it do mean one thing and some another, but what's happened is that poor little Reddy Priddle have tried to drown herself. No, really. Why, she bade us good-bye with the rest. Yes, well, sir, when you and your missus, so to name what she lawful is, when you two drove away, as I say, Reddy and Marion put on their bonnets and went out, and as there is not much doing now, be it New Year's Eve and folks' mops and brooms from what's inside em, nobody took much notice. They went on to Lou Everard, where they had summit to drink, and, and then on they vamped to Dree-Armed Cross, and there they seemed to have parted, Reddy striking across the water-meads as if for home, and Marion going on to the next village. Where there's another public house. Nothing more was seed or heard o' Reddy till the waterman, on his way home, noticed something by the great pool. Twas her bonnet and shawl packed up. In the water he found her. He and another man brought her home, thinking she was dead. But she fetched round by degrees. Angel, suddenly recollecting that Tess was overhearing this gloomy tale, went to shut the door between the passage and the anteroom to the inner parlour where she was. But his wife, flinging a shawl round her, had come to the outer room and was listening to the man's narrative, her eyes resting absently on the luggage and the drops of rain glistening upon it. "'And more than this, there's Marion. She's been found dead drunk by the withy bed, a girl who have never been known to touch anything before except shilling ale. Though, to be sure, ah, she was always a good trencher woman, as her face showed. It seems as if the maids had all gone out of their minds. And 
is asked tess is is about house as usual but she do say she can guess how it happened and she seems to be very low in mind about it poor maid as well she might be and so you see sir as all this happened just when we was packin your fuel traps and your missus night rail and dressin things into the cart why uh, it belated me yes well jonathan will you get the trunk upstairs and drink a cup of ale and hasten back as soon as you can in case you should be wanted tess had gone back to the inner parlour and sat down by the fire looking wistfully into it she heard jonathan cale's heavy footsteps up and down the stairs till he had done placing the luggage and heard him express his thanks for the ale her husband took out to him and for the gratuity he received jonathan's footsteps then died from the door and his cart creaked away angel slid forward the massive oak bar which secured the door and coming in to where she sat over the hearth pressed her cheeks between his hands from behind he expected her to jump up gaily and unpack the toilet gear that she had been so anxious about but as she did not rise he sat down with her in the firelight the candles on the supper-table being too thin and glimmering to interview with its glow i am so sorry you should have heard this sad story about the girls he said still don't let it depress you ratty was naturally morbid you know without the least cause said tess while they who have cause to be hide it and pretend they are not this incident had turned the scale for her they were simple and innocent girls on whom the unhappiness of unrequited love had fallen they had deserved better at the hands of fate she had deserved worse yet she was the chosen one it was wicked of her to take all without paying she would pay to the uttermost farthing she would tell there and then this final determination she came to when she looked into the fire he holding her hand a steady glare from the now flameless embers painted the sides and back of the fireplace with its colour and the well-polished andirons and the old brass tongs that would not meet the underside of the mantel-shelf was flushed with the high-coloured light and the legs of the table nearest the fire tessa's face and neck reflected the same warmth which each gem turned into an aldebaran or a sirius a constellation of white red and green flashes that interchanged their hues with her every pulsation do you remember what we said to each other this morning about telling our faults he asked abruptly finding that she still remained unmovable we spoke lightly perhaps and you may well have done so but for me it was no light promise i want to make a confession to you love this from him so unexpectedly apposite had the effect upon her of a providential interposition you have to confess something she said quickly and even with gladness and relief you did not expect it ah you thought too highly of me now listen put your head there because i want you to forgive me and not to be indignant with me for not telling you before as perhaps i ought to have done how strange it was he seemed to be her double she did not speak and claire went on i did not mention it because i was afraid of endangering my chance of you darling the great 
prize of my life my fellowship i call you my brother's fellowship was one at his college mine at talbothay's dairy well i would not risk it i was going to tell you a month ago at the time you agreed to be mine but i could not i thought it might frighten you away from me i put it off then i thought i would tell you yesterday to give you a chance at least of escaping me but i did not and i did not this morning when you proposed our confessing our faults on the landing the sinner that i was but i must now i see you sitting there so solemnly i wonder if you will forgive me oh yes i am sure that well i hope so but wait a minute you don't know to begin at the beginning though i imagine my poor father fears that i am one of the eternally lost for my doctrines i am of course a believer in good morals tess as much as you i used to wish to be a teacher of men and it was a great disappointment to me when i found i could not enter the church i admired spotlessness even though i could lay no claim to it and hated impurity as i hope i do now whatever one may think of plenary inspiration one must heartily subscribe to those words of paul be thou an example in word in conversation in charity in spirit in faith in purity it is the only safeguard for us poor human beings integer vitae says a roman poet who is strange company for st paul the man of upright life from frailties free stands not in need of moorish spear or bow well a certain place is paved with good intentions and having felt all that so strongly you will see what a terrible remorse it bred in me when in the midst of my fine aims for other people i myself fell he then told her of that time of his life to which allusion has been made when tossed about by doubts and difficulties in london like a cork on the waves he plunged into eight and forty hours dissipation with a stranger happily i awoke almost immediately to a sense of my folly he continued i would have no more to say to her and i came home i have never repeated the offence but i felt i should like to treat you with perfect frankness and honour and i could not do so without telling this do you forgive me she pressed his hand tightly for an answer then we will dismiss it at once and for ever too painful as it is for the occasion and talk of something lighter oh angel i am almost glad because now you can forgive me i have not made my confession i have a confession too remember i said so ah to be sure now then for it wicked little one perhaps although you smile it is as serious as yours or more so it can hardly be more serious dearest it cannot oh no it cannot she jumped up joyfully at the hope no it cannot be more serious certainly she cried because tis just the same 
I will tell you now. She sat down again. Their hands were still joined. The ashes under the grate were lit by the fire vertically, like a torrid waste. Imagination might have beheld a last-day luridness in this red-cold glow, which fell on his face and hand and on hers, peering into the loose hair about her brow, and firing the delicate skin underneath. A large shadow of her shape rose upon the wall and ceiling. She bent forward, at which each diamond on her neck gave a sinister wink like a toad's, and pressing her forehead against his temple, she entered on her story of her acquaintance with Alec d'Urberville and its results, murmuring the words without flinching, and with her eyelids drooping down. End of Phase the Fourth